Delta Center in Salt Lake City, and where a sellout crowd is ready to rock the Raptors for game one of this rematch in the NBA Finals. Good news for Jazz fans. In the past quarter century, prior to this one, there have been five rematches in the NBA Finals. In every instance, the team that lost the first time came back to win the second. Wow, there he is on the phone with us. He did the 1998 NBA Finals. It is Bob Costas. Bob, thanks for joining us. How are you? Hey, Pete. How you doing? This is becoming a regular thing. Well, we spoke before the first episode, and we watch episode one, and you're featured in episode one, and I've come to find out that you worked at WGN-TV. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Well, in truth, I don't remember setting foot in the building more than once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I did the one season of telecast, and they were all road games. Okay. With the late, great Johnny Red Kerr, one of the most wonderful guys you the could best. ever be around. Yep. And the reason they used that on the first episode of The Last Dance, apart from the amusement factor, seeing me in the gold WGN jacket with 1979 length hair, and at age 27 looking like I was about 15, the amusement aspect aside, the point was, how mediocre or worse the Bulls were just prior to the arrival of Michael Jordan. They went 32-50 and 50 that year. Wow. A young Jerry Sloan was their head coach. And worse yet, on the road, I missed one of the games because of a conflict with an early assignment with NBC. I had just signed with NBC at the same time that I began doing these Bulls games for one season. So I did 19 games. They lost 17 of those 19 games. The one I missed, they won. But my record was 2-17. and 17. So I was there in that first episode just to testify to how <laughs> woeful they were. But soon enough, with the arrival of Michael Jordan, things would begin to change. Oh, my gosh. Do you still have the yellow WGN-TV jacket? I believe I had to give it back. What? <laughs> it was on loan. If I ever had it, let's put it this way. If I ever had it, mm-hmm. it long since went to some worthy cause. Uh, I like that. Uh, Bob, since we've talked before the first episode, you've watched every episode, I'm assuming. Yeah, I have not seen any of the episodes in advance. So I'm waiting to see 9 and 10 tonight like the rest of the world. So what do you think so far? We have two left tonight. What do you think so far? I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's one of the best pieces of sports television I've ever seen. Obviously, game coverage or event coverage like the Olympics is in a different category. But if you talk about something that's in a documentary mode or something like that, it's among the very best things I've ever seen. The most watched show in ESPN history outside of games. Is that because it's the Bulls in 98 or is that because it's Michael Jordan? And because of the time frame where people are starving for new programming that's compelling. Right. So it's a variety of reasons. But you knew, even while it was happening, that this was something different. As great as Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were, and Julius Irving before them, giving the ABA credibility and bringing new life to the NBA when the leagues merged, and as great as the Celtics-Lakers rivalry was, in the 90s, everything got kicked up a notch because of Jordan himself, because of how good the Bulls were, because of modern marketing. It existed before, but with Nike and others, it got kicked up to a higher level. Because the NBA was on NBC at that time, most of it now these days is on cable. And you got the Dream Team in Barcelona in 1992, which again helped to ratchet it up a notch. All those things that at the center of it, 
is maybe the greatest leading man in NBA history. So even then, you knew it. That game, game six, uh, which we'll see part of, I'm sure, tonight, game six in 98 in Salt Lake City when the Bulls wrapped up their sixth title, that is still the highest-rated NBA game ever. The greatest finish in the history of professional sports as Michael Jordan walked away. I can see when when someone brings up the shot or you talk about game six, mentally I can see um, the picture of Michael just hanging there holding the shot after he mm-hmm. makes it. I just love that. I love it. Yeah, and some people thought, because Michael certainly had a sense of theater, that he did that so that it would look all the more classic. But his more simple answer, simpler answer, is that with fatigue uh, a factor in the fourth quarter, and he was playing many, many more minutes than he might ordinarily have. Scottie Pippen was hobbled. The game and the series were on the line. Uh, that in that fourth quarter, some of his jumpers were coming up short owing to fatigue. So he wanted to make sure that he finished the shot. Um, and that was why we heard him say that uh, recently. That was why he held the pose that way. You know, Sam Smith has been on, who's featured in the series. Rick Tellender, who works for the Sun-Times, followed the Bulls throughout the uh, yeah. you know the mid-90s, late-90s. Rick made a comment that has really stuck with me. The last two minutes of that game really says something about Michael Jordan's basketball IQ. How he, he drove down, steals the ball, makes the final shot. Well, they were down by three after Stockton hit a clutch three-pointer. Now, this is with less than a minute... Yep. To go. Uh, and other than whoever inbounded the ball on the first possession, it's noteworthy that even though Michael bought into the triangle offense and often hit the open man, famously Steve Kerr, to win the championship the year before, uh, he bought into the triangle offense. But in that situation, no one touched the ball in the last 40 seconds or so for the Bulls except Michael Jordan. He took the inbound pass. He drove to the basket. The Jazz were wary of fouling him because they were up by three. Mm-hmm. It was still a difficult shot. He had to arch it high off the glass. But it took so little time off the clock that the shot clock was well above 24 seconds. So the Jazz couldn't hold it and make the Bulls foul him. They had to come down and try and score. Now, Dennis Rodman always gave Carl Malone a hard time. Rodman's the primary defender. Jordan slips off of his man along the baseline, sneaks up behind Malone and kind of tomahawks it away from him, (laughs) makes the steal, and again, he doesn't give the ball up. He brings it out of the backboard himself. He takes it to the side of the key. He puts the move on Russell, and then he hits the classic jumper. And at that point, there's five seconds and a fraction left. But again, to show you, it's sports. Things are decided by the smallest of margins. That Stockton shot didn't miss by much. At the buzzer. Yeah. Um, so you know, if that goes in, you play a game seven in Utah with Scotty Pippen hobbling. The Jazz at least have a decent shot to win that game and with it the championship. But it didn't turn out that way. It's really amazing to me all the sporting events that you've done in your lifetime. And you can just recite that like it was yesterday. It's unbelievable. Well, that's because it was so big. Pete. You know, I, I can't remember every event in that kind of detail. But that was one that certainly would stick with you. What is the biggest events that stick with you? If you could name your top five, would that be number one, 1998, or an Olympics? What would be your top? Give me your top three of all time, Bob. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to put them in order. 
certainly the Jordan shot and that Bulls victory in 98 would be one of the three. Muhammad Ali lighting the torch at the opening ceremony in Atlanta in 1996 because of all it represented. It was dramatic, it was exciting, but it was also poignant and moving. And then I would say Kirk Gibson's home run in 1988 in Game 1 of the World Series for the Dodgers. I didn't call that. Vin Scully called it. Uh, I was the pregame and postgame host, so my contribution was to... uh, interview Kirk Gibson in the immediate aftermath. But that wasn't just dramatic. I've said this before. That was cinematic. And I guess my only other contribution was, pardon me, I said immediately after we went off the air that night, I said to David Neal, the pregame producer, that reminded me of Robert Redford's last that bad as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. (laughs) And David took it from there. And it was harder to edit then than it is now. 32 years ago, you didn't have all the digital technology. He worked all night and intercut Redford's at-bat in the natural with Gibson's at-bat. And it was eerie how some of the images mirrored each other, including humorously Wilford Brimley as the manager of the New York Knights (laughs) jumping up in exultation and Tommy Lasorda doing the same for the Dodgers and each of them getting only about as much off the ground as you would need to slip a lineup card beneath their cleats. It was just a beautiful piece of television, and that's how we came on the air before Game 2, and all I said to bring it on was echoes of a miracle. And then the pictures and Randy Newman's soundtrack from The Natural took it from there. And Kirk Gibson has subsequently told me, I mean, after all, he authored the moment, he lived it, he said a good piece of how he remembers it is based on how it was covered, not just that piece before Game 2, but also the way it was covered in real time. If you want to talk about how sports television should be done, if you were making a movie of Kirk Gibson's last at bat and you had days, weeks, months to edit it, massage it, change it around, you wouldn't change a frame of the way Mike Weissman produced it and the legendary Harry Coyle directed that sequence and, of course, the way Vin Scully described it because it isn't just the play itself. It's the anticipation leading up to it, the faces, the building tension, and then the reaction shots afterward, not just of the winners, but of the losers. This was like a movie in and of itself, and that's why it matched up so well with The Natural. And I think you could say the same thing for the way David Neal produced and Andy Rosenberg directed that Game 6 in Salt Lake City in 98. Wow, we're talking with Bob Costas. Anytime you could uh, you know, you talk about that, I feel like I need to look it up on YouTube. But anytime you could bring up Wilford Brimley on this show, I absolutely yeah. love him. And I well, love to quote Wilford Brimley. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> I love that he was the heavy in the firm, by the way, if you remember that movie. Yes. <laughs> Bob, uh, the, do you remember your speech uh, after game six, how you said this will probably never, ever happen again in NBA history. As you were talking about Michael Jordan staying with the same team, how, mm-hmm. you know, with free agency. Do you remember that speech? And can you uh, talk about it a little, a little bit? Yeah, people still mention it to me. And I guess it's knocking around on YouTube. Uh, I was talking not just about the NBA or the Bulls, but about the emerging new era in sports. And I don't begrudge players any of the rewards that they deserve, but there's always peripheral consequences. And so it's harder to hold legendary teams together now in almost every sport. 
So it wasn't just Michael Jordan or even Scottie Pippen. There was a cast of characters around them. You look at the Jazz, uh, Stockton, Malone, even at that time, Jerry Sloan, I think, had been a head coach of one team longer than any other team in the NBA. And I think I made the stipulation that there may be some exceptions because the teams with the highest revenues uh, would be better able to hold the core of their teams together. Uh, But that, by and large, that kind of of loyalty and that kind of longevity was being shattered by the economic realities of modern sports. So another reason to savor this, because either we won't see it again or we won't see anything quite like it all that often. Now, immediately after that, I have to concede that Shaq and Kobe won three straight, 2000, 2001, and 2002, but it was then broken up because of friction between Kobe and Shaq. Right. And Shaq left. So... I, I think I had a point, and people have told me subsequently that I don't know it's, it keeps cropping up. So it must have it must have resonated with some people. It keeps coming up. Uh, we're talking about Bob Costas. I'm going to take a quick break, and uh, we have Scott Burrell coming on at four o'clock our time today. I want to ask you about Michael writing Scott Burrell in last mm-hmm. last week's episode, and I want to talk a little baseball with you when we come back. Okay, sure. We're talking with Bob Costas. Uh, it's seven twenty. WGN. Pete McMurray in the Skyline Studios on the phone with us is Bob Costa's episodes uh, 9 and 10 tonight of The Last Dance starting at 8 o'clock Chicago time on ESPN. Bob, as I watch this, it brings back some very happy memories, but I also get angry because I wanted Jerry Reinsdorf to step in and say, Jerry Krause, step back for a second. Let's wait and see what happens after the season. How come he didn't do that? I don't have enough insight into it. Uh, to say. I think other people, Sam Smith and others who covered it and were right there on a day-in, day-out basis might have greater insight into it. I like Jerry Reinsdorf personally. I think his intentions are good. There's a lot of good things to be said on behalf of Jerry Reinsdorf, but certainly he was empowered to step in. What Jerry Krause planned to do, and in effect did, was borderline insane. And while Jerry Krause deserves more credit than he probably received. I forget whose quote this is, but it's a great quote. Maybe it was Phil Jackson. might have been. Jerry didn't get all the credit he deserved, but he didn't deserve all the credit he wanted. And sometimes when people's own ego or sense of themselves or whatever it might be gets in the way, uh, then rational judgments are pushed to the side. I really feel as an accidental consequence of what was a mistake, that Jordan's legend is enhanced because of the way they did it. And he left, and the rest of the team, the dynasty left, with people still wanting more. That actually adds to the mystique. If they came back and won a seventh the next year, you know, there was a lockout, there was labor strife, didn't feel like a complete and true season. And what if they had lost? And the last image is him walking off the court, no matter how well he played, with his team having lost at some point in the playoffs. So inadvertently, Kraus enhanced the legend of those last dance bulls and of Michael Jordan. But did it make any sense from a basketball standpoint? <laughs> Hell no. No. Uh, I just don't understand it. Do you think, since you, you covered the NBA Finals throughout the 90s, you, you uh, announced the NBA Finals, um, would you have thought that Michael Jordan had two years left in him in a Bulls uniform if they would have signed him? Well, he was 35 years old, asked to play 
grinding tough minutes through a long season and then the playoffs. Remember how uh, much of a test the Eastern Conference Finals were. The Pacers took them to seven and had the lead in Chicago, a big lead, early in Game 7. So I don't know if he could have come back and replicated it. I'd never bet against Michael Jordan. What makes sense for even the greatest of athletes might not apply to Michael Jordan. Maybe he's truly in a class of his own. But at some point, you have to reach diminishing returns. So like I said, I think for the sake of the legend, for the sake of poetry, it's just as well that it ended the way it did. Right. Definitely so. We're talking with Bob Costas. Scott Burrell is going to be on with us uh, right after 4 o'clock Chicago time. Michael rode him during last week's episode. They showed that from 1998. Does it make Michael look like a bad guy? Because he got very emotional in one of those episodes last week as the players were talking about how he was kind of a jerk. And Judd Bushler said they were terrified of Michael, especially in practice. Well, they may have felt that way in real time. I don't sense that, in retrospect, many of them hold, if any of them, hold a grudge. They obviously appreciate his greatness as a player. And I think many of them, the impression I'm getting is that they were glad they were part of a team that Jordan, in large part, helped to drive to the heights it reached, not just with his own tangible contributions, but with the intangible stuff, with being such a demanding practice player and with holding himself to the very same standard he expected of others. So I'm sure that even the least of them, the last guy on the bench, was happy to have been part of that experience. And without Jordan's talent and will, it doesn't happen quite that way. Right. Bob Costas, I want to play a soundbite from last week's episode, and I want you to comment on it. This was my favorite scene last week. Here it is. A lot of people okay. bagged down the bike. I didn't. I made it a point. I said, just tire him out. You just got to tire him out. Hitting him and banging him and hitting him and banging him. It took a toll on Mike. It took a toll. And then <laughs> resting him a little bit. And then the, the, the series changed. And I wish I could have did it earlier. I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but it, it, it was a difference. <laughs> and, and beating him down a little bit. The glove. I had no problem with the glove. Michael was looking at an iPad, and Gary yeah. Payton was talking about guarding Michael Jordan. What are your thoughts? Well, George Carl didn't want to wear Gary Payton out on the offensive end by making him chase Michael Jordan all over the court. But then when they went down 0-3, he switched the defensive assignment, and for whatever reason, I'm sure the Payton's defense had at least a bit to do with it, uh, the Sonics got off the mat and won games 4 and 5, in Seattle to send it back to Chicago where the Bulls closed it out. So I think that Peyton has a point. And Michael, even though he's mellowed a bit, uh, everything's relative. There's still a whole lot of competitive <laughs> fire there. And I think the laughter, the laughter is, you know, that's his, that's his rejoinder. Right. Do you think they covered the Isaiah storyline um, uh, fairly? Yeah, I think I, they did, because Michael says what Michael says. And Isaiah was on there, and they had Isaiah's point of view uh, several times. And maybe overlooked is that Michael says that Isaiah is the second greatest point guard in NBA history after Magic Johnson. And then Charles Barkley subsequently said, not in the last dance, but elsewhere, on TV, that Magic's in his own category. He's a 6'8", 6'9", guy, point guard, played center in an NBA Finals game, 
played forward, doesn't really fit the category. So it's really a John Stockton guy that you're talking about. And Barkley says that Isaiah is one and Stockton is two among the smaller true point guards. So I don't think that Isaiah as a player is shortchanged. Um, Isaiah is obviously hurt by the fact that Michael still holds something of a grudge going on 30 years since the Dream Team and since the passing of the torch oh, yeah. from the Pistons to the Bulls. But let me say this, and this is something I don't think has been said by anyone during this period of time when everybody's reliving the NBA of the 90s. As fate would have it, Isaiah Thomas was in his first year with NBC in the 97-98 season. So it's me and Isaiah at the start of that season. And then Doug Collins is dismissed by the Pistons, and Dick Ebersol wisely hires him right away at midseason. So Doug Collins joins us. In any case, we did a whole bunch of Bulls games in the playoffs and throughout the regular season. And I can say this without the slightest doubt. Isaiah Thomas never once let whatever was the personal dynamic between him and Michael Jordan color his descriptions or analysis. He gave Michael Jordan full and complete credit for being the greatest player he had ever seen. Now, people who watch games through the prism of their own fandom, not just these games, any game, World Series, Super Bowl, anything, they always think that the network announcer is rooting for the other team or not giving their team <laughs> enough credit. Yep. During that series in 98, people in Utah thought that I was <laughs> sucking up to Michael Jordan. And people in Chicago thought that I was rooting for the Jazz <laughs> right. somehow. And all that a network announcer, there may be some exceptions, all a network announcer ever hopes for is the most dramatic and interesting outcomes. You don't want it to be a sweep. You don't want too many games to be blowouts. That's that's the only rooting interest that you have. All right. So leaving aside the perceptions of rabid fans who are not rational about it, Isaiah Thomas was so even handed and so fair regarding Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And I'm the guy who sat next to him and heard every syllable he uttered. And it was completely fair and completely professional on his part. So whatever feelings he may have harbored, it never got in the way of his assessment of Michael Jordan. Watching this series, I forgot how much I enjoyed hating the Pistons and hating the New York Knicks in the 90s. I just loved hating them. Well, yeah, because not only were they rivals, but they didn't have as much talent. I mean, Isaiah aside, a few guys, Patrick Ewing aside, they couldn't measure up. And the way to have a chance and to push the Bulls to the limit, and actually uh, before 91, in the Pistons' case, beating them, was to make it rough on Michael. Right. So it wasn't just that the games were close, the series were close, it was the way those games were played that intensified the rivalry and intensified uh, the feelings on the part of each fan base. Bob, you're the best. Thank you for coming on. We're out of time. Uh, we have to have you back to talk Major League Baseball. Let's wait till they start playing. <laughs> I will. Uh, have, a great, <laughs> All right, Pete. have a great Sunday. Thanks again. Okay, you too, pal. Bye. That is uh, Bob Costas, everybody. Just the best. Episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance tonight on ESPN.